Well, some of the churches you drive by, you'll see a sign out front that uh, has a marquee where they'll put the sermon title or sometimes there's a special announcement. And there was one church that had put the sermon title and an announcement too close together. And so driving by what you read is, what is hell like? Come and hear our new church organist this Sunday. (laughs) Now, after I finish my message today, you might feel like I should have titled this sermon, What is Hell Like? Listen to Roger preach about it today. As uh, we look at this message this week, I'll tell you that it was a hard one to prepare. A lot of them are difficult, but this one was especially hard. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is that we're dealing with the subject of hell this morning. And that's that's a, a difficult topic in and of itself. And beyond that, when you're dealing with a hard passage, what pastors will often do is go to a commentary and look to see what other scholars and people have drawn from the passage. And you know it's going to be a hard one to preach when over half of the commentaries you look at just skip right over the passage. Don't say a single word about it. And then of those that do talk about it, they begin with things like, this is the most difficult passage in all of the Bible. Or few agree. So as we look at this passage today, as I prayed through it, I thought about it, I thought, why not just skip over this passage like some of the commentaries do? But if you skip over what we're going to look at today, you see that the very next verses we come to in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 tell us, God gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. What God says is, Roger, this is your job to dig into a deep passage like this, to talk about what it means to help God's people be better prepared for what the scriptures say is coming. Another thing that we see Uh, In Ephesians 3, 18 through 19, as we saw there that Paul prayed that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So as hard as this passage may be to dig into today, I want us to do it because in it we see just how high God went and how low he went to save us. We see what is the, the height and the depth and the breadth of his love for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. So I invite you to turn with me there in your Bible as we look at Ephesians 4, 8 and following. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this is expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, as we read these verses, what Paul is doing for us is he's quoting from Psalm 68 in the Old Testament. And Psalm 68 was a victory song. It was sung uh, to commemorate God ascending the hill of Zion and, and taking captive his enemies. It was sung as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem. It was also a psalm that was sung every year at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, it pictures God ascending the hill of Zion and receiving these gifts from his captured enemies. Uh, You've heard me talk about the Hebrew word for glory before. Glory is kavod in Hebrew. And it's a word that has a literal meaning of heavy. And it was used to describe a soldier who was said to be covered in glory as he would come back from a campaign where they had defeated enemies and looted cities. And as they carried back the wealth of the defeated cities, they were, they were literally heavy with the load of the riches they were bringing into the city. They were covered in this glory. 
And as the soldiers would return to the city, there was always a victory parade. And at the front of it was the conquering general, and he would come in riding on a white horse or maybe in a chariot that was being pulled by these white stallions. And behind him were the victorious soldiers covered in the riches that they were carrying. There would be captives that were also in the procession. There were, there were the defeated enemies who were brought in as trophies. And there was a special group of captives, those who had been taken, retaken captive. They were the prisoners of the war of the king who, with this enemy, maybe had been uh, captured in previous battles. And they were returning, having been set free by the conquering general. And as we look at this passage here today, we see Jesus is pictured as this conquering general. He's having his victory parade, and he's passing out gifts to his followers. Now, the gifts that are given here are not like what the general would do, where he would throw gold coins into the crowd, or maybe the soldiers would distribute some of the riches they were carrying to the people of the city. What is happening here is that Christ is not handing out worldly wealth. But as you look at the context of Ephesians, you see that Christ is handing out spiritual gifts. Uh, We're going to see next week as we look at verses 11 and following some of the spiritual gifts given to build the church. And as you look back at verse 7, it says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So as we look at Ephesians 4.8 and Christ being pictured as returning victorious victorious from battle here, he's ascending not to uh, the heavenly city, uh, I, I mean, ascending into Jerusalem, the hill, like when the, the ark was brought into Jerusalem. Rather, he's ascending into the heavenly city of Zion, what heaven itself is. And as we look at this, it says he's bringing with him captives. Now, I want to take you to the original text, both in the Hebrew and the Greek here this morning, and don't let your eyes glaze over on this. I'm not going to read it all in the original languages. I want you just to see the literal translation of what we're looking at. So here you see Psalm 68 in the Hebrew, and below it is the original word-for-word translation of above, and then Ephesians 4.8 in the Greek text. And what you see is in the Old Testament, it says, you ascended on high, you led captives captives. That's speaking of God in the singular second person form. But as you look in Ephesians 4, you see the Christological interpretation as it applies to Christ. And it says, he, this is Jesus, ascended on high. And it says, he led captivity captive. I want you to see the literal translation is captivity was taken captive. Our English texts tell us that there were captives who were brought back. And that's all in view here, but there's something much, much larger at play in the text. Now, there are those who will look at this passage and say that the the captives that are being led captive, uh, taken out of this place that we're going to see in a moment is Sheol, also called Hades in the New Testament. And don't lose, don't don't get your eyes glazing over yet, because I'm going to take you literally step by step through all of this. And you're going to see how it all comes together. In these slides, everything will be online, so you don't have to fervently write this. You can just go online and get everything that you're seeing this morning. But as it speaks of captivity being led captive, uh, I don't believe that we're dealing with the Old Testament righteous dead being taken out of Sheol and into heaven at this moment. I say that because in Daniel 12, 2, there it appears that the righteous Old Testament believers are not resurrected and removed and given their place in glory until the second coming of Christ. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. There are good and godly men and women who see the the Old Testament believers being released at this moment. But I think what we need to focus on today is that what Jesus did at the cross is he defeated sin, death, 
Satan, captivity completely. We as believers have been released. We've been freed. The scripture tells us from our old dead way of life. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from the penalty of death through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is captivity captive. He's removed everything that held us uh, in its sway in the past. Now, people will often say, what happened to Christ after he was crucified? The Bible tells us he was buried in the tomb and he was there for three days before he rose from the dead. And sometimes people say, well, what was going on during that three days that he was in the tomb? Well, what we're looking at today in Ephesians 4 eight tells you some of what was happening. A parallel passage you can look at is in 1 Peter chapter 3. Because in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 through 20, we're told this also took place. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedience. Now, what we see here is during that period of time when the stone was still rolled over the mouth of the tomb, it says Christ went and he made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, as I told you, we're going to be unpacking what Sheol and Hades are. Uh, There is also a place called hell, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But where Christ descended here and the people he spoke to, uh, I do not believe were the, the captive righteous saints that were in Sheol. I'll tell you, there are a couple reasons that tell us this. First one, it says Christ made proclamation. He doesn't use the Greek word euangelizo or evangelism we speak of when we proclaim the good news of the gospel. He doesn't use that word. What Peter uses is caruso. It's a word that speaks of proclamation, and it could be applied in some context to a gospel, but it's more of a victory proclamation. This is not a second chance at salvation. You'll hear some people who want to explain away hell and universalism that says everybody gets to go to heaven and they say, well, when we die, you get a second chance. Friends, I wish I could tell you that's what the Bible said. I do not want a single soul in all of eternity to spend uh, time separated from God in hell for eternity. And yet the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Our condition, the decision we make while we are physically alive on the earth will determine our eternal destiny. When Christ made proclamation, it says to the spirits. And the Greek word used there is not suke, which speaks of a human soul. You've heard psychology, the study of the soul, the mind. Uh, That speaks of a human soul. What he uses here is the word pneuma. And pneuma is a Greek word that is used to speak of the angelic angels, those created angel type of beings, and it also is used to speak of the divine, as in the Holy Spirit. But the word that is used there, it says, Christ made a victory proclamation to the spirits. And notice that there in Peter, it says, to those who were in prison who had once been disobedient. We could spend the entire uh, time just on this first Peter passage. If you want to go deeper into what's going on here, you can read Genesis 6 and see where the fallen angels cohabitated with women. You can go to the book of Jude and see how their sin was so heinous they were judged immediately and placed into this, uh, this place of judgment. These are not human beings that Christ is speaking to and saying, here's the second chance at being saved. What this is, remember, is his victory parade. And he's going into this place 
to say to them, you lost. Let me put it in terms that my middle school son would understand. If, if you were to talk to Zachary and you were to say, what does this passage mean in his words? He would say something like, this is the mic drop in the Bible. Okay, this is where Jesus Christ walks into the prison and he says, you guys thought you won when I died on the cross. And he says, boom, you lost. And then he does, you know, <laughs> then, he, then he dabs on his way out of jail, right? Yeah, I know you're burning that image in your, in your mind right now. He says, you see these crucifixion marks? You see my hands? He says, you lost. Amen. This is Jesus telling them, you lost. You thought you won, but the cross means victory. He took captivity captive. Now, as we look at 1 Peter 3, this, this is the victory here, but we come back to Ephesians 4.8, and there's a different group in play. Because in Ephesians 4.9, it says, Paul says that Jesus Christ ascended from where he had descended. What Paul's saying is into the lower parts of the earth. What he's saying is follow logic. If Jesus ascended back into heaven... It first means he had to descend from heaven. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, and I'm not going to go into the three grammatical forms of the genitive here, but I'll tell you what they ultimately mean. The way that this sentence is written in the Greek text, it allows three interpretations. One of those is if you take it as Christ descended uh, to the earth, it speaks of his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, where the baby of Bethlehem was the word of God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And it goes on to tell us how he took on flesh and blood. And it speaks of how he left his throne in heaven to come to earth, the incarnation as he descended here to the created world. That's one view. The second is that as Christ descended to, uh, into the lower parts of the earth, it speaks of that which belongs to the earth. When we typically bury a body, it's done six feet under the ground. And so this is speaking of the burial of Christ. When his body was taken physically off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea received it. It says it was buried in the tomb of a rich man. He was placed in the grave. So it can speak of Christ literally being in the grave after his crucifixion. And the third option is that Jesus went to the parts lower than the earth. Lower than the earth. What this is speaking of is what the scriptures tell us there's a place called Sheol, which is also Hades in the New Testament. There's a place called Hell. These are the places lower than the earth. Now, if you were raised in the, the Catholic church as I was, I was raised as a Catholic. I was an altar boy. I was confirmed all of these things. I was told there is a place called purgatory. This is not purgatory that we're talking about. In fact, as you read through the Bible, purgatory is never mentioned in the scriptures. It's not mentioned in the Catholic Apocrypha, which are the additional books taken as inspired scripture. The best they can point to is in 2 Maccabees, where there was a, a sacrifice made for some of the Jewish soldiers who had pagan amulets around their, their necks, saying, we'll see, there was a second chance after death to make atonement for sins. As you read through the Bible, purgatory is not something that God... Uh, says is there. It's found in the Catholic Catechism, in section 1030 of the Catholic Catechism, which is not scripture. I just want you to hear what purgatory is defined as. It says, purgatory is a place for purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified. 
So what Catholicism is saying there is you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And they're saying, but when you die, you don't go into heaven directly because you have stuff you have to work off. You have to have time served. There's a, they, they point to the fires in the Bible, the abode of the dead, and they say this is purification taking place. Now, while Corinthians tells us as believers our life works are judged, those are for rewards, not to determine if we get into heaven. Uh, Catholicism is saying you don't get to go into heaven until you've worked off the things in, in your life that were not forgiven here on earth. If you were here back when we looked at Ephesians 2, verses 11 and following, you'll recall we took a tour of the temple. And as we went on a tour of the temple, we talked about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We talked about what Jesus did when it said he removed the wall of separation. We saw how we are no longer separated from one another, Jews and Gentiles, and we saw how we are no longer separated from God because the veil in the temple was torn in two. If you missed that message, I invite you to go online and listen to it because we can't cover it all in depth today. But I want you to remember is that what we saw is as Christ died on the cross, as he breathed his last, in John 19.30, we read in our English translations often, it is finished. And we saw what that word used in the original language was, was to telestay. It was a word that was used, archaeologists and scholars have told us it has a literal meaning of paid in full. As Christ died on the cross, what he paid in full was the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Christ died on the cross, he didn't say, down payment made, now you do the rest. You go to church enough, you be good enough, you serve out some time in purgatory, and you get purified because you're imperfect. What Christ said is, paid in full. It's why we read in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 5.8, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We do not go into this interim place of the dead. We go directly into heaven as New Testament believers. Now, as Jesus Christ died on the cross and he paid this penalty in full for us, as you read through the scriptures, it does talk about a place of the, the dead, an interim place. Sheol and Hades. It is not purgatory. And I want you to see that as we talk about these fires, they're not to purify us. They are a place of separation, a consequence of the rejection of people when it came to Jesus Christ. As you look at the scriptures, there are different words that are used for what we commonly call hell. One of those is Gehenna. And Gehenna was a place that, that pointed to the, the smoking trash dumps, this, this horrendous, smelly, fiery, just decadent place that was outside of the city where the fires, they were constantly burning. And people said, that is a picture of what is coming. As you look in the scriptures, it speaks of the fires in, in numerous ways. And I'm not going to walk through all these passages. Again, these slides are online for you. The Bible describes this, this place of judgment for those who have died as the unquenchable fire, the furnace of fire. It speaks of it as a place of blackness and darkness. It's the lake of fire and brimstone. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. And you see that it is also prepared for the unbeliever. There in Revelation 20, it speaks of the great white throne judgment and how those who have rejected Jesus' payment in their place will have to pay that penalty themselves. And it says... All of those, the unrighteous dead, will be sent to the lake of fire in the end times and time of judgment. Now, 
the lake of fire is a different place. The lake of fire does speak of hell. Gehenna is a different word for it. But when it comes to the lake of fire, it's not Hades. Uh, Look at Revelation 20, verse 4. It says, and death and Hades, notice this is a separate place, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Hades will be no longer needed at a point in the end times, and it will be placed into the lake of fire. It says this is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, when it comes to the, the lake of fire, and you see that that's what we call hell, it's separate from Hades. Well, what is Hades? There's a Greek word, hades, and it's a literal translation of what we see in the New Testament. Hades is the same word that is used in the Old Testament of Sheol. Now, we know that because there is an Old Testament translation called the Septuagint, which is where they took the Hebrew text and they translated it into the Greek language when it looked like the Jewish language was dying off during the diaspora and other times after that. And so 67 times the word Sheol is used in the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, 66 of the 67 times Hades is used there as the the equivalent. So we know we're dealing with the same place. Now, what is Sheol? Well, it's a Hebrew word that comes from, these are the roots that it are drawn from. One is sa'al, which means to ask. So it makes Sheol a place of continually asking for more dead. The Bible says the grave constantly wants more and more. It has an insatiable appetite for more dead. Sa'al means the hollow of the hand, and it spoke uh, of Sheol being a hollow or empty place. So when we think in terms of the abode of the dead, we've already talked about hell. Now, that is the permanent place of judgment. Hades and Sheol is the interim place of waiting. Stay with me. It's not purgatory. There is no purgatory. So what exactly is Sheol and Hades? Who went into Sheol and Hades? I'm glad you asked. So as we look at the scriptures, uh, what we find about Sheol and Hades is that it's a place where both the righteous and the unrighteous went. Now, if you're asking yourself, why did the Old Testament saints before Christ came go to Sheol? But I've already told you, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, we as New Testament believers go right into the presence of God. Let me rewind our series for a moment again and remind you of something we looked at in Ephesians chapter 1. Were you here when we talked about dispensationalism? And you were wondering, why do we need to know about dispensationalism? And we saw that dispensationalism, that Greek word ekonomia that was used there in chapter 1, spoke of how God operates in different ways at different times with us here on the earth, in this household called earth, but that salvation has always been only through one thing, which is faith alone. Do you remember that discussion? Again, if you missed it or need a reminder, please go online. If you're having trouble sleeping, all these sermons are available to you to listen to in the comfort of your chair at home. And so what we saw was God operated in different ways at different times. So in the Old Testament, they didn't yet know the name Jesus Christ. They knew there was a promised Messiah coming. The scriptures are very clear. It pointed to this promised one. There were the covenants that were made with Israel. But they didn't know yet the name Jesus Yeshua, which means salvation. They knew Christos or Hamashiach in the Old Testament, which means the Messiah. The crucifixion of Christ had not yet occurred, so the gates of heaven had not yet been opened by the sacrifice made for Christ. So the Old Testament righteous dead went to Sheol. We find an example of somebody who's there in Genesis chapter 42, verse 38. There, Jacob, 
who is the father of the nation of Israel and one of the righteous Old Testament saints, said in Genesis 42, 38, when he died, he would go down to Sheol. Now, it's also a place where the wicked dead went. In the book of Numbers, we read about Korah and Dothan. These were the people who led the nation of Israel in rebellion against uh, God's uh, man Moses in the wilderness. And it says in number 1630 that in judgment, God opened the ground and they descended alive down into Sheol. So if both the righteous and unrighteous dead are in Sheol, does that mean they were together? They were having the same experience? Not at all. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 16. As you look at Luke chapter 16, there Jesus is talking about what happened to Lazarus as well as what happened to an unrighteous rich man. In Luke 16, 22 through 24, it tells us, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, there's our word, which is also Sheol, remember. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in the flame. So we see there is fire in this place. As you look at verse 26, it says, but Lazarus says he can't do it. It says, in between us, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So as we look at what's happening, this is speaking of those who died before Christ was crucified and the gates of heaven were open. Lazarus, who was a righteous one, and he didn't earn his way by being good enough, it was through his faith, he was given a place called Abraham's bosom. This speaks of Father Abraham holding those in his arms. And it says the unrighteous rich man, he's not in, in, in this place of punishment because he was rich, it's because of who he was and how he lived his life and the rejection of God's promised Messiah. And so here is this man who is in this place of flame, and he says, send Lazarus over to cool my tongue with some water. And Jesus plainly says there is a, a chasm, a separation, and nobody over here can go over there, and nobody over there can come over here. Remember, it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. It's not purgatory where you spend enough time here, you get to you know, jump over here and get into heaven. Jesus says where you are based on the choice you made when you die is where you spend eternity. Now, while there is a chasm in eternity that cannot be crossed, going back to what we saw in Ephesians 2, 11 and following, there is a chasm called sin that can be crossed by us here on earth because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. And as you place the foot of the cross over here and picture it being laid across that chasm of sin that separates us, it's why Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's through our faith in Christ, believing that his sacrifice saved us, we step out in faith on the cross and we enter into the presence of the Lord. Now, as we keep looking at what Luke 16 is telling us, this man who was suffering said in verses 27 through 31, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He's saying, okay, I'm here forever, but I still have relatives who are living, and I don't want them here with me. 
Friends, hell isn't like the cartoons you read where it's a party and Satan's there with the pitch. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire and judgment. It's not a place you want to be. It's a horrible time of separation and torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, for if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will, will they, Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Moses is credited with the, the Tanakh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He says, you have the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, not only the, the, the Torah, but you have, you have the prophets, all the others, those like Isaiah that point to the crucifixion of the coming one called the Messiah. He says, they don't need anything more than the word of God. They have that. And he says, you're saying, well, if somebody would rise from the dead and come and tell them, surely they would believe. Friends, what did Jesus Christ do? He rose from the dead. History and scriptures and eyewitnesses and others tell us he was buried in the tomb and he rose from the dead. God says you have all the evidence you need. If you're sitting here this morning saying, well, Roger, I'm holding out for more. If some past relative comes back from the dead and tells me it's, it's true, or if Jesus himself were to appear to me and tell me it's true, then I'll believe. And what Jesus says is, no, you're not getting anything else. You have everything you need. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, you guys have the sign of, of Noah. You know, uh, you have the sign of Jonah, the guy who went into the belly of the well and came out three days later pointing to Jesus being buried and resurrected in new life. He says, you need nothing more. God has told you everything you need. Friends, what is it keeping you, that is keeping you from coming to faith in Christ this morning? If you're a believer and you've already received the Lord, you know what the scriptures say and you've embraced that. But if you're here today and you're saying, Roger, I haven't yet crossed the line of faith, what is it that you think you need more than what God has already given you? He's revealed himself in his word. And he's revealed the living word. John 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it goes on to speak of how it took on flesh and blood. Remember the incarnation of Christ as he who was in the throne in heaven descended to the earth. The cross points to how he went into the tomb and he rose from the dead three days later. He says, what else do you need? As you look at your life today, what are you trusting in to get to God when you die? If you think you can get there on your own, I want you to listen to Psalm 89, 48. Because it says, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, what we've been talking about? The answer, of course, is man cannot, but God can. In Psalm 49, 15, it says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. How can you make sure that you're going to be received in heaven when you die? Well, you find the answer in John 1.12. It says there in John 1.12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Do you remember Ephesians 2.8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We get to heaven not based upon how good we are or what work we did here on the earth. We get to heaven based upon what God's son did when he went to the cross and he paid that penalty of death for us. 
If you've never accepted his great gift of new life, I invite you to do so, to turn to him to be your savior today. As we're talking about the, on, the Old Testament righteous dead, these are those who trusted in God and his provision for them. Remember, they didn't yet know the name Jesus Christ. They were looking at the prophets, the Old Testament law, the things that pointed to the Messiah that would come and fulfill all these things. Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, 6, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Read the, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. In Hebrews eleven four 4, all the way through, uh, it tells us about the Old Testament saints who were like Abraham, who placed their faith and trust in the promised one who would come without yet knowing all that we have the privilege of knowing today. One of those who believed in, in Jesus without knowing his name was King David. And it says in Psalm eighty six thirteen. For thy loving kindness toward me is great, and thou hast delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David knew in the Old Testament he would not spend eternity in Sheol, that there was a place he would go to be with the Lord in heaven one day. Now, as you think in terms of Christ, when he was buried in the tomb and when, when he was there, did, did he rot in the grave? Was he subjugated to Sheol or some people say burning in the fires of hell to make atonement? No. This is what uh, Psalm 16.10 tells us. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. As you look at the New Testament, it says in Acts 2.31-33, He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus... God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, this is speaking of the ascension, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has, prepared, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Do you see what's happening here? Is This is telling us how it all comes together. We've been covering a lot of ground, but let me show you how it all comes together. Look at Ephesians 4.10. It says, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Do you know what it means to fill all things? He's fulfilled every promise, every prophecy. Do you know what the plan of God has always been? Jesus knew I would leave my throne, I would come to earth, I would take on flesh and blood. It meant I had to go to a cross. I had to die paying the penalty of death. He knew he would go in the grave. He knew he would rise from the dead. He knew he would ascend back to heaven, and he would then send back the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the whole context of Ephesians? Is the gifts that the conquering general gave to his people? Do you know what the greatest gift is that God has ever given to us? Eternal life, you're thinking, and that's true. But in terms of the spiritual gifts and the empowerment for the church to fulfill the mission of God to preach the gospel all throughout the world, you know what he sent us? The Holy Spirit. As Jesus walked the earth before his crucifixion, he said this in John 16, 7 to the disciples. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper, this is the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the total fulfillment of God's plan. All that he promised we see having happened. 
This psalm, as I shared with you, is the beginning, at the beginning of the message. Remember when Psalm 68 was always read? It was at the Feast of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened at the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament? The birth of the church, as we saw in the book of Acts. On the Feast of Pentecost is the day that the tongues of fire descended upon the believers as a sign that the Holy Spirit had been given and the church had been birthed. As we look at how all of God's plan comes together, as I said, I know we've covered a lot of stuff here this morning, and it may seem confusing to you, so let me pull it all together. Let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you this morning to tell you how all of this, what all of this means for us. And there was a, a young man who was 12 years old in the first service who understood it and received the Lord this morning, and I think you can do it as well. I'm, pr- I'm praying that that will happen if you don't yet understand how it all comes together. This is what it tells us. There was a, a mom whose little boy came to her one day and said, Mommy, how do you get to heaven? And the mother did as we do as parents and breathed one of those quick prayers, Oh, Lord, give me the right words. And she said to her little boy, she said, Son, do you know how to get to Grandpa's house? You know when we go to Grandpa's house, do you think you could get there on your own? And he said, No, Mommy, I kind of know, but I, I would get lost. I can't, I can't get to Grandpa's house on my own. And she said, Well, then, son, how do, you, how do you get to Grandpa's house if you don't know the way? And, she, and the little boy said, Well, Daddy takes us there. And the mom said, That's right, son. Daddy takes us to Grandpa's house because that's his dad's house. He's going home. He knows the way, and he takes us there. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us, friends. He went back home to his daddy's house. He knows the way. And he provides a way to take us there if we will place our faith and trust in him. In John 14, 1 through 6, Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ came not only to show us the way, friends, he came to be the way. And if you're here this morning and you've been trying to get to God by being good or showing up at church or doing things that you think will earn your way into heaven, God says you can't get home that way. But if you come to faith in his son, if you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that word means you've done some things in your life that were wrong, you've disobeyed, You've stolen a candy cane out of a stocking. You've eaten a Christmas cookie. You've done something that you shouldn't have. That's called sin. That's disobedience. And we've done many things much worse than that in our eyes. No matter what it is we've done, God tells us that he sent his son to go to the cross to pay that penalty of sin. And if you will place your hand in his nail-scarred hands and accept his gift of life, he'll take you home. He'll show you the way. We're going to give gifts at Christmas in many cases to those we love. And the Bible tells us that God loved us so much he gave us the greatest gift we'll ever receive. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. That includes you. You're in the world. So put your name there. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son 
that if you will believe in him and put your name there, then you will have the gift of eternal life. If you'd like to receive God's great gift of life to you this morning, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is acknowledge in your heart that you need the Lord. You need to turn from your sin and to him to be your savior today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you'd like to accept his great gift of new life, please bow your head and pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life, and because of that I know I owe a penalty. A penalty called death. You tell us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And today, Lord Jesus, I accept your great gift of new life. I'm turning from my sins into you to be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me the way home. Thank you, Jesus, for being the way home, for taking me there through what you did to take away my penalty of sin and death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making me a part of your family. Would you help me now, Lord, to begin to live my life in a way where I grow in my knowledge of who you are, and may I live in a way that would honor you. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At the end of the service, I'm going to be standing at the front with some prayer leaders and others who would love to talk to you if you just prayed that prayer. We want to make sure you understand that first step of faith you just took and to help you to begin to grow in your walk with the Lord. We stand now as we sing this closing song of worship for our Savior.